The medicine of East Asia is based on a science that does not hold itself separate from the phenomena that it seeks to understand. Our medicine did not grow out of petri dish experimentation or double-blind studies. It arose from observing nature and our part in it. East Asian medicine evolves not from the examination of dead structures, but rather from living systems with their complex, mutually entangled interactions. Welcome to Geological. I'm Michael Max, the host of this podcast that goes in-depth on issues pertinent to practitioners and students of East Asian medicine. Dialogue and discussion have always been elemental to Chinese and other East Asian medicines. Listen into these conversations with experienced practitioners that go deep into how this ancient medicine is alive and unfolding in the modern clinic. Have you ever had the experience in clinic when a patient says something and it just stops you in your tracks? There's a kind of gravity and brilliance about what they just said that completely resonates with you. The feeling in the room changes. I had that happen the other day when a patient of mine said, a listening heart perceives meaning. It really got me thinking about the importance of listening, and it reminded me how Ting, the Chinese character for listen, at least the traditional form of it, actually tells you what's involved in deeply listening. I'll be back a little later in the show to unpack that character for you. These geological conversations come to you through the generous support of our sponsors and members. All the sponsors here provide helpful products or services that you'll find beneficial in your clinical work. Need to fill up the appointments created by late cancellations? Jane can help with that problem. Mayway Herbs is celebrating the 55th year of their family business. You're invited to make use of their vast library of resources. Concerned about the health of Mother Earth? AccuFast Needles is doing something about that. You can too. And later in the show, listen for a special offer from Andrew Sturman on Diet as Medicine and the folks at Blue Poppy share some thoughts on the safety of herbal medicine. Do be sure to visit the sponsors page on the Geological website to take advantage of all the special offers our terrific sponsors have for listeners of the podcast. Hi folks, I'm Yvonne Lau, president of Mayway Herbs. Our family business turns 55 this year, and we wouldn't have gotten this far without the love and support of our community. We're truly grateful and promise you that we'll continue to work hard to support you and your practice. Please visit mayway.com to find the perfect plum flower brand formula or formulate your own in our dispensary. Our site also has lots of articles, videos, and herbal recipes for you to explore whenever you need a break. And tune into our podcast, Chinese Medicine Matters, for insightful discussions on all things TCM. Learn about treatment strategies and powerful herbal remedies, and enjoy bits of Chinese culture. This month, we're focusing on the treatment of various skin concerns like itchy skin and stubborn acne. And if you're a practitioner, get a discount on our skin health formulas this month too. Just visit Meiwei.com. This season and every season, trust Meiwei for your health and wellness needs. And as always, thanks for supporting Real Chinese Medicine. Change is never easy. This is evidenced by the fact that the scales weighing the number of people on the green side of change versus the number of people on the old, hard-on-the-planet ways of doing things are still way out of balance. Our planet is suffering, but our profession has an easier way to shift the scales. The founders of AccuFast Earth-Friendly Needles started with a great needle and then created our industry's first eco-friendly packaging and reusable accessories. They also give back to nature by planting trees. I encourage you to challenge yourself to make the change. Ride the wave of spring yang chi and make the switch by joining me and the multitude of colleagues who made the change. Now you can celebrate Earth Month in April with pride knowing that you're helping us to tip the scales of planetary health towards a greener, healthier, and healing planet. Visit www.acufastneedles.com to get on board. You've probably already heard me here on the podcast share about Jane, my favorite all-in-one practice management software that helps you to run your practice online and manage no-shows. The team at Jane understands that life happens, and sometimes that means your patients are unable to make their scheduled appointment. 
If that's the case, a quick and easy way to fill those unexpected gaps in your day is by utilizing Jane's time-saving waitlist management features. You can take advantage of automated SMS text or email notifications to notify eligible waitlisted patients that there's an opening so they can easily scoop up an available time. If you know you're ready to sign up, you can mention the show or use the code CHEOLOGICAL for a one-month grace period on your new Jane account. Visit jane.app to get started today. Hey folks, welcome back to Geological. I've got Josh Lerner with me. Some of you might be familiar with Josh Lerner. If you're a listener to Everyday Acupuncture Podcast, he was on there not once but twice. In that first show, we got to talking about fat, and then we came and did a second encore follow-up about chewing the fat, healthy fats and that kind of stuff. It, it was good stuff. So you might already be familiar with Josh. If you're not, Josh is an acupuncturist and uh, toy na guy in the Seattle area. Today, our subject is acupuncture and a little thing called trigger points, dry needling, and intramuscular therapy. You know, there's a lot of talk about this stuff. Josh has some insights because he's gone and done some study on both sides of this. So welcome back, Josh. Great to have you here on Geological. Thanks, Michael. It's great to be back here. I think we talked a little bit about some of this in the first thing we did on everyday acupuncture, because that was about orthopedic acupuncture. That's right. That's what it was. Yeah. You know, I've got 80 plus episodes over there. I can't keep them straight anymore. You're just too prolific for your own good, Michael. I don't know if I'm prolific. I've just done it a long time. You know, you do something, you do a little bit of something on a regular basis. And the next thing you know, you know, the years go by and you got a bunch of it. It's like not cleaning out the garage. <laughs> Excellent. <laughs> so you're an acupuncturist. In fact, we first met when I had just graduated from acupuncture school and you were still in it. And we got to share some time in a clinic in Seattle some years ago. So you're, you're an acupuncture first and foremost. And I know that you've had a deep interest in body work over the years. You know, you've done a lot of the work, uh, the Junggu Tuena, right, with the guys from New York. Amazing Tuena, holy smokes. And you've gone into looking at the work that, you know, is often called dry needling. I guess they got a bunch of different names for it these days. What, what are they calling it anyway? Well, the standard terminology for the use of needling to treat trigger points is still pretty much called dry needling, although there are other groups calling it other things. There is, like you mentioned, the uh, intramuscular therapy that is taught based on the theories of a, of a physician named Chan Gunn. You know, interestingly, my introduction to trigger point theory actually started back when I was in acupuncture school, back probably about 1998 or so. Uh, one of my teachers back when I was at the Northwest Institute of Acupuncture and Oriental Medicine, back when that was still around, was an acupuncturist named Sarah Bayer. And the neuromusculoskeletal class that she taught, she introduced us to the idea of trigger points. She recommended that we get a copy of the main textbook that was written by the woman who is really responsible for the spread of interest in trigger points, a woman named Janet Travell, who died in 97, the year I actually entered acupuncture school. So I'd known about them when I was still in school back in the late 90s, and I had a kind of a vague concept of them and a vague idea of the importance of them and some of the similarities between trigger point theory and acupuncture theory. Mm -hmm. Well, we have our sure points, right? Right. But we also have this idea that a problem in one area of the body might produce symptoms pretty far away from where the problem is. And that's one of the whole ideas behind trigger point referral patterns is you might have pain in the wrist that might get diagnosed as carpal tunnel syndrome or like a tendonitis or tenosynovitis. And the pain is actually referred from maybe one of the rotator cuff muscles up in the shoulder or from a muscle in the neck. And the problem itself is a contraction in the neck that we can talk about the whole physiological process of why that causes pain in the wrist. But this idea that there are these pretty consistent referral patterns that you can map out 
um, and that you can also recreate. If you have a problem in one of the rotator cuff muscles, for instance, like on the infraspinatus, and problems often occur somewhere around like small intestine 11 on the back of the shoulder blade. And if there's a problem in that muscle and you press around small intestine 11, you can then cause that referral pattern, that pain to radiate sometimes into the front of the shoulder around like large intestine 15. They can go down to the elbow, even into the fingers sometimes. And so they, the referral patterns overlap with acupuncture meridians quite a bit. And so there's definitely a similarity in the view of how sensations kind of travel through the body in a kind of a pathological sense between trigger point theory and traditional Chinese medicine. I find it so interesting that we have our ideas of channel theory and we have these ideas that you can work distally and where something shows up is not necessarily the place where the problem is. I mean, that's very elemental to Chinese medicine. And then here we have this stuff looking very physiologically from an anatomical point of view, Western biomedicine, and we come up with the same thing. I mean, it's really not a surprise, right? We're all looking at the same thing. We're just coming up with uh, you know, different stories about what's going on. Yeah, no, that's really true. We are, we're looking at the same bodies. Everybody, for the most part, we have the same physiology. We tend to have the same problems that tend to arise just as part of our physiology. And we have basically different languages to describe what's happening to our bodies. So I think of being an acupuncturist who's really interested in, in the Western medicine side of things. It's like just being bilingual. You know, we have two different languages we're having to kind of translate between each other, but both languages are describing the real world. It's just each language tends to clump phenomena together differently. Right, you have different ways of describing, like how do you define a tree in one language versus a tree in another? Like, is is there a difference between different types of maple trees in one language? Are they all just considered one thing? Whereas in another language, it might be a very fine distinction based on you know the cultural needs of the people who evolved that language. Right, same thing with medicine. I, I want to come back to that a little bit later in the show because this is an area that's a little bit near and dear to my heart in terms of how we communicate what we're doing with our patients and the languages that we use. But I, I, I want to come back to that a little bit later. What I'd like to continue with here is what you've been learning through this you know, other side of the house, so to speak, although, of course, acupuncturists don't even want to think of us being in the same house with people doing dry kneeling. But you know, we're all working with the same stuff here. I don't want to get political here. But, you know, a lot of people go, oh, you know, we just shouldn't do that. Just don't go there. But it's here. Yeah, it was an interesting process getting involved in this because I guess I could really say that I ended up really getting more deeply into trigger points after hearing about them initially because of my wife. So my wife is a physical therapist, although she doesn't do any orthopedic work. She functions more like a neurologist and focuses on vestibular disorders and and the past has done a lot of like neuro rehab, but she gets a lot of mail like advertisements for continuing education classes. And she got one once, this is probably about 10 years ago now, nine or 10 years ago, she got a flyer for a class on manual trigger point therapy being taught by an occupational therapist out of Aberdeen, Washington. And it was a class that was just down the road from where we live. And it was a two day class on treating trigger points with massage, basically with manual therapy. And so she got it addressed to her, and I looked at it. I'm like, you know, I used to really be interested in trigger points. I thought they were fascinating. Maybe I'll take this class. So I did that. I was in a class with PTs and massage therapists and OTs. And uh, the teacher was really fantastic, a woman named Lori Connolly, who just, uh, I think she just retired uh, earlier this year. So she's not teaching anymore. But it really opened up my eyes to this whole new way of looking at pain and dysfunction. And the class was really all manual technique. So diagnosing what muscle is probably, muscle or muscles is probably the cause of the problem. And then doing a specific kind of massage technique where you palpate the muscle for these very tight bands of tissue, these kind of ropey bits in the muscle. You find the most tender part of it, you press on it and you hold it until the muscle relaxes and then the referral pattern goes away. 
And so I was an acupuncturist at this time for probably six or seven years. I've been using needles for that long. I was in school for four years. But still, there was something about the manual approach that I found very compelling, partly because I had already started doing Twena with Tom Bizio and Frank Butler at that time. So I'd had about a year of experience doing lots of manual therapy with Twena techniques. But I actually spent probably the next two years after that initial class, and I, I did a, a full series of about four or five weekend classes with her. There was a kind of a general intro class, an upper body class, a lower body class, a head and neck class, and a specific uh, temporomandibular joint class, like treating jaw issues with trigger point stuff. And I did this whole series of classes over the course of a year or two. And I spent the first two years with my patients really focusing on just doing the manual techniques. I didn't really start needling trigger points, I mean, consistently for two or three years after I started doing this, because I found the manual practice of releasing trigger points taught me so much about palpation and about anatomy that I hadn't really known before just doing needling. It, doing trigger point work like that really requires a very different layer of attention than we normally do in acupuncture school. So it was several years after that, I started also then teaching that material at the Seattle Institute of Oriental Medicine um, when I started supervising the clinic there. And then it was really just about three years ago when I, I was starting to needle trigger points on my own, but then I actually decided to take a series of classes that are taught by physical therapists, by the myopain seminars people, which is the continuation of the original seminar series that was taught by Janet Travell, who we can talk about if you want, in kind of a historical context. But I, so I took the series of classes that focused specifically on using needles, the, the quote unquote dry needling classes, and then really started focusing much more on, on needling the trigger points in that particular context, because it's a very specific technique that they use. I am struck by what you had to say about putting your hands on people and feeling what's going on, really paying attention to the tissues, paying attention to what, to what your hands have to say, and how that gave you a different kind of palpatory awareness of what was going on in the body. And then later you took that and added the needles. Yeah, you know, it's really interesting because in some ways, the type of palpation that you have to do for trigger points is much coarser or more gross in the technical sense of that term than what we normally do in acupuncture. Most acupuncturists have very refined palpation skills for subtlety, for even something like taking the pulse. I've had classes with, even like at Sion, when we have PTs come and taking classes or even like a simple first aid class, like a CPR class being taught by someone who knows we're acupuncturists, a lot of these Western trained people will say, yeah, you acupuncturists are much better at taking pulses than we are. I mean, you know, I, sometimes I can't feel someone's pulse at the wrist, which is why I always take it at the neck. So we have great training for feeling things like a pulse or just like subtle changes in the tissue and feeling the chi in the channels. But a lot of acupuncturists actually have a much harder time palpating some of just the big, obvious structures of the body unless they've done a lot of orthopedic work. And I remember my, the first time I noticed this was when I was still in acupuncture school, uh, Junji Mizutani, who's an acupuncturist up in Canada, he's, he runs or edits the, the North American Journal of Oriental Medicine, kind of a bilingual Japanese-English journal. Uh, and he's a big teacher like on moxibustion. He's kind of an expert on Japanese styles of moxibustion. And he came down to school at Nyom when I was there and taught a one-day class on Japanese moxa techniques. And one of the techniques that he was showing was the way that he does, I think we were doing uh, like needle moxa, kyutoshin uh, in Japanese. And so we had a class of about, I don't know, 15 or 20 acupuncturists, combination of students and people who've been in practice a long time. And Junji wanted us to needle tight areas in the muscle. And you know, Japanese acupuncture is very palpatory based. And so he was, he showed palpating the muscle. He was kind of pressing in deeply and finding these tight bands and putting a needle in and then doing mocks on them. And then he had us do it. I watched him walk around the class and for pretty much every group of students that he walked up to, he would have to put his hands on their hand and like push in deeper into the tissue and roll his fingers back and forth 
It's like, no, feel deep. There's this big knot right there. But now all the acupuncturists were kind of going in very gently and subtly and feeling for these much more subtle changes. And he was like, no, you're missing it. It's not that subtle. It's really obvious. You just have to press harder and really. Uh, and so that was the first time that I saw, oh, there are actually different ways of palpating. And if you're not paying attention to a certain type of information coming from the body, you're going to miss it. And I run into the same thing teaching this material at school. I've gotten away from introducing needling trigger points to the students too early in their time in school because I want them to spend more time palpating muscles deeply and really understanding the fiber direction of each individual muscle, figuring out what is a like a pathological tight band of tissue. And it really requires, for the most part, people to be much less shy about pressing in deeply and really, you know, kind of cross fiber massaging some of these muscles, because that's how you figure out where the actual tight bands are. I mean, I've had a lot of study around palpation. It's a really interesting area for me. And yet we're having this conversation here today, and I realize, yeah, that, that more surface stuff or that more subtle stuff, that's one thing. But really getting in to the meat... I realize I've got a big deficiency there. Where where could I go to start filling out that portion of my palpatory vocabulary? The first thing that you can just start doing on your own is pick some of the really important muscles that tend to be problematic in most people. So for instance, the upper trapezius, like around you know, gallbladder 21, the infraspinatus covering the entire back of the scapula, not just the paraspinals, but like the quadratus lumborum in the lower back, the, the gluteus medius, and see if you can actually feel the different layers of the muscles. Some of the muscles are easy to feel. Some of them are, are less easy to feel. But aside from kind of doing it on your own, any good class on manual techniques is going to kind of force you to start palpating at that level. I sometimes view our bodies like we're a radio and that we're, we can receive different frequencies of information. And some of the subtle palpatory techniques are like just a very uh, kind of much higher up on the dial. Whereas some of these types of palpatory techniques that I'm talking about are pretty low frequency. And everybody who practices manual medicine like this, you're going to have a certain range of radio stations that you are really good at picking up naturally and it's going to be the center of gravity of where your attention tends to get pulled back to. And you can learn to kind of expand that range. Like I can do the subtle stuff to a certain degree. I've done visceral manipulation classes. I work with in the school founded by Dan Bensky. And I've learned a lot from like Marguerite and from Craig and other people who do the subtle stuff. That's not my natural center of gravity for what I'm paying attention to. I can shift there, but like that requires more attention and energy for me to maintain that, whereas feeling joints and muscles and bones is kind of where I'm most comfortable. You can develop the facility for kind of changing radio stations or changing the frequency of the information that you're getting, but it just takes some conscious practice and effort. Well, and it sounds like it's helpful to recognize, and I love your term here, where your center of gravity is, where you tend to go or even where you like to go. I mean, I'm reminded of ugh, decades ago at this point, it's weird saying decades ago, being in a clinic and, you know, student clinic and someone had just come in and was talking with one of the teachers and made a comment about how she really liked the treatment that she did on the patient. And the supervisor's response was, I'm glad you're happy. I hope it's what the patient needed. <laughs> right. Right. The right. meaning being, are you able to get out of your own center of gravity? Yeah, great great phrase. Can you get out of the thing that you like and open up enough to see what is it that the person in front of you actually needs? You know, it might not be the center of your dial. Right. And there, it's also then even more important to recognize when someone needs something that you're not going to be very good at giving them. And so that's when, like if I have some patients who I know need a different type of work than I normally do, which I could do but it's not something that I do regularly, then that's when you have to refer out to your network of people who you trust, of people who have much wider ranges than you do. 
And then you have those same people if they have, and I've had referrals from acupuncturists who tend to do very subtle things. They have a patient who they realize, oh, they basically need some trigger point work done. And so they will refer to me. And so it's, it's an interesting conundrum because in one sense, you want to feel like you're constantly pushing and exploring the areas where your weaknesses are. But at the same time, recognizing that you can't do everything all the time, which is you know one of my biggest problems. I feel like I have to be able to do everything. So I'm going to do the subtle stuff and I'm going to do the, the kind of coarser muscle stuff. So it's, a, it's an interesting dynamic to me between recognizing what you're good at and focusing on that while still pushing the boundaries and not letting yourself get stagnant and kind of forcing yourself to work in the areas that are outside of your center of gravity. Uh, but that's a whole topic for another podcast. Probably, right? <laughs> it, is, it is, isn't it? Hello, everyone. Andrew Sturman here. I've been working with clients in Chinese medicine dietary therapy for over two decades in New York City. My focus is beautiful, simple, delicious, and health-supportive home cooking. Good meals can be inspired by the strategies of classic herbal formulas so that each meal is infused with medical intention from appetizer to dessert. This requires an understanding of the energetic properties of grains, vegetables, meats, fruits, and more, and knowing which foods are moistening, drying, building, clearing, warming or cooling, as well as their directionality. I've organized these teachings in my two-volume book series, Welcoming Food, where you can learn this theory, practice it in your own kitchen, and love doing so. See the positive reviews and incredible testimonials from practitioners and patients who've brought this material into their own kitchens. Welcoming Food Books 1 and 2 can easily be found online, and if you'd like to follow me on Instagram, where I'll be posting cooking tutorials, you can find me at Welcoming Food. Back to you, Michael. Thanks very much. I remember when I was in acupuncture school. I mean, we talked about Asher points. I don't think we called them trigger points. I think we just called them Asher points. And, you know, we're told that's, you know, one aspect of Chinese medicine. It's one thing to work with. I don't remember getting much more instruction than stick a needle in it and disperse it. If it hurts, stick a needle in it. Something like that. Yeah. It sounds like you've got much more finesse given the study that you've been doing. Walk us through how you would, first of all, find out where the right points are, right? Where that, where that trigger point is. Like you were saying, they may have an issue with their wrist or their hand and you might be working up in their shoulders or neck. Walk, walk us through a case. So to do that, you need to take about 30 seconds and have a brief discussion about all the different aspects of trigger point activity, because it's not just about muscles causing pain. So the physiology of trigger points, what a trigger point is, so maybe we'll start with that, because that will set up the foundation for discussing like a case study or things like that. What a trigger point is, is a pathological, small, localized contracture within a muscle. So really what we're talking about is a, is a shortening of a muscle, part of the muscle, not the entire muscle. It's not a muscle contraction. I mean, it's not a muscle like a cramp or a spasm, uh, which is a function of the entire muscle shortening because of electrical activity coming from the nerves. Right, so that's called an electrogenic contraction. That's a normal muscle contraction. The nerve fires a signal, the muscle fires, and the, all of the different motor units in the muscle fire, and you raise your coffee cup or whatever. What a trigger point is, is a small localized contraction of the sarcomeres within the muscle that happens for a number of reasons that I have a whole lecture I give students on. Um, but it's basically small little bits of the muscle are caught in kind of a feedback loop of contraction they can't relax for a number of, of biochemical reasons. And that shortening is the, the kind of the tightening and the knot that you feel like if you palpate gallbladder 21 and there's usually that knot most people have there, right? Or small intestine 11. Small intestine 11, yeah, that exactly. Super easy to feel. Yeah. What that means is the muscle itself is short, which means that the muscle isn't functioning normally, which means that it's normal jobs, like in the case of small intestine 11 and the infraspinatus, the shortening, it can stimulate the nociceptive nerve endings, the nerve endings that signal damage. They're the, the ones that are called pain receptors, although it's not really pain that it's signaling. It's, it 
affects tissue damage. So there's the relationship with the central nervous system and the nociceptive pathways, and that causes referred pain. But also what that then starts doing, because the infraspinatus now can't contract normally because it's in a partially pre-contracted state, and then when it does contract, the order of firing of the motor units within the muscle is disorganized, so it can't contract strongly. And with the rotator cuff muscles in general, one of their really important functions is not just in rotating the upper arm and doing the rotation of the humerus and the glenoid fossa, but they actually stabilize the shoulder joint, right? The shoulder joint is a very shallow ball and socket joint. It's more like a a golf ball sitting on a tee than like a deep socket like the hip is. And so the rotator cuff muscles, including the infraspinatus, are very important for keeping the head of the humerus stabilized in the joint. So now you've got a potentially less stable shoulder joint because of the trigger point in the infraspinatus. So then the shoulder becomes unstable, and then other things start, like the, the bicep might start to tighten up more because the bicep tendon runs over the front of the shoulder, and that might be doing that in an attempt to try to provide some stability with the, the bicep tendon over the, the front of, the, of the, uh, the joint capsule. And so you can have this kind of cascading series of biomechanical effects that are completely separate in a sense from the actual referral pattern. So having, having said all that, patient comes in, they've got pain in the wrist that's been diagnosed as like carpal tunnel syndrome. Maybe it's pain at the base of the thumb and it's radiating up into like the index finger. I've got one of those. Yeah. Their whole list of muscles that can, if they have trigger points in them, can refer pain in that area. Uh, the scalenes could be another one. But let's say that it turns out that it's an infraspinatus trigger point. You know, with that patient, they come in, they say they have this pain. The first thing you can do is just palpate the muscle itself, kind of visualize the direction of the fibers of the muscle. You palpate across like 90 degrees to the direction of the fibers, across fiber, the muscle fibers. It helps to kind of throw the edges of the tight bands into sharp relief when you do that so you can actually feel them. And you press on the muscle. It's really sore. And you might actually recreate their pain when you press on that muscle if you're in the right spot. So you press on like small intestine 11 or some point right near there, and all of a sudden they feel the pain in the wrist. Bingo. Then you know you're in the right spot. But the patient also might come in with some other issue like um, they may have an elbow problem because they're an athlete and they have uh, maybe they're a, a pitcher in like they're pitching baseball or maybe they're doing a lot of pull-ups or push-ups and they have some problem in the elbow and you look at their biomechanics and you figure out that the reason they're having elbow pain is because their shoulder isn't very stable and they're doing some weird thing with the muscles that control the scapula to compensate for the fact that their shoulder joint itself isn't very stable. And so they're unconsciously guarding to kind of help try to keep the shoulder joint stable. And it's not stable because they have trigger points in the infraspinatus or other rotator cuff muscles that are contributing to the instability because they can't function normally because they have these shortenings in the muscle. So that's a case where you have to be a kind of a detective and trace back this chain of biomechanical effects and try to figure out, you know, is looking at the trigger points of the muscles that are responsible for this instability going to be a really kind of helpful and efficient way of looking at the patient. So the referral patterns are really the, the best way to get started with this. Just anytime someone has pain, if you get either like posters that, or books that have lists of the different uh, trigger point referral patterns in them, the two main books written by Janet Travell, the Red Bible is what they're called, they have extensive lists of muscles by body part. So if there's like a list of muscles that all refer pain to the front of the shoulder. There might be you know 10 muscles that do that, and they're often listed in order of most to least likely. So any patient that you have that comes in that has pain in the front of the shoulder, you can just start palpating those muscles that are likely to refer to that area. Time for a quick break. I promised you I'd explain how the Chinese character for listen actually instructs you in what's involved in listening. The character is pronounced ting, and the traditional form is made of the characters for ears, eyes, and you ready for this? Heart. Makes sense, doesn't it? 
to listen, to really listen, it involves all of these senses. I hope that you find listening to Geological stimulates your mind and heart and helps you to better help your patients. All right, let's get back now to the second half of the show. So this is what you could really teach yourself. You wouldn't necessarily have to start doing treatments right away. But if you have one of those posters around and someone complains of this, you know, in the process of doing whatever you're doing, you could just, you know, check it out, see what you notice. Absolutely. And, and then, I mean, treat however you're going to treat. I mean, you might want to needle the point, but you might just want to go do whatever treatment you're going to do and then, and then go back and check. What happens if I press on these points later and are they still active or have they, have they changed? Yeah. And that's, that's how a lot of people end up learning how to treat trigger points. They kind of hear about them. They get one or two resources, even just so their websites online that you can go to. I think there's one that's called like triggerpoint.net that has all these lists and pictures of all the referral patterns. And just with the people who show up in your clinic, you can just start using these resources yourself. But you brought up a really interesting point, which is that you can do the treatments you would normally do, or you can start kind of incorporating how you would affect particular muscles with the techniques you already know how to do and do those techniques and then palpate and recheck. And that's the thing about the trigger point work is that the changes should be immediate and you're looking at trying to find an immediate decrease in the sensitivity of the tissue and a decrease in the referral pattern, uh, sometimes within seconds of of doing it. And this is, it's not a subtle thing. It should be a pretty obvious uh, change that doesn't require too much kind of interpretation on your part. I mean, I think with any of these palpatory findings, whether it's subtle or the more gross type that we're talking about now, the great thing about palpation is that we can use it to check our work. Yeah, that's, that's just absolutely vital, especially for orthopedic conditions and musculoskeletal conditions. One of the interesting discussions around trigger points, uh, even in the Western medicine field, is the discussion of, of what is causing them to begin with. Basically, they're, they're different schools of thought, but they basically come down to whether or not the, the trigger point is a problem specifically that local to the muscle that is not dependent on it being fed by a problem like coming from the nervous system versus people who feel like it's really a problem ultimately of the nervous system and that the either the peripheral nerves um, or the central nervous system are what is causing the trigger points to form. And depending on what your take on that is, it's going to change how you treat. So there's one school of thought that says trigger points are the cause. And there's another school of thought that says the trigger points are the effect. Uh, kind of, yeah, basically. And so that the trigger points, by saying the trigger points are the cause, what I'm saying is that when trigger points form, they can form because of muscle overuse, muscle overload. There can be endocrine or other changes, basically anything that interferes with the energy supply to the muscle. But the once the trigger point forms, it is kind of its own physiological or pathological entity. There are things that are happening in the muscle itself that keep it continuing. But the other schools of thought, for instance, intramuscular therapy by Chan Gun, they say, well, the trigger points in muscles form because there is, it's basically like a radiculopathy. So there's some compression of the nerve roots at the spine, often from like tightening of the paraspinal muscles. It compresses the nerves in a certain myotome. So for instance, with the infraspinatus, maybe C5 or C6 nerve roots, and that causes a pathological functioning of the muscle that manifests as a trigger point. So in that case, you can treat the, the muscle itself, but you also have to treat the spine. So the muscles around the, so like in those cases, they needle what we would consider like the Huato Jaji points at the affected spinal level. Yeah. I mean, we're talking root and branch here. Right. And so the, the difference in the two ideas is that, you know, when the trigger points are being caused by something else, so that the trigger points are kind of more of a of an effect or a branch than the actual cause, then if you treat the cause, the trigger point should go away. And that means you could do any kind of distal type of treatment, whether it's like a, a 
sheet cleft point on the same channel that the trigger point is on, like you could use small intestine six to treat the trigger point need for spinatus, right? And that often works very well, especially for trigger points that aren't that deeply entrenched. But once they get to a certain point, when they become more what we would really consider blood stasis in Chinese medicine as opposed to qi stasis, and with blood stasis, one of the one of the ways of differentiating between those two that I learned from Matt Callison is that with blood stasis, you have to do something locally in the tissue. Once there's blood stasis there, you have to get in with the needle into the actual blood stasis itself, or you do gua sha, or you do matzo, whereas things that are just qi stagnation tend to respond well to distal treatment. So you can do like needling a jingwell point on a muscular uh, sinew channel or a muscular tendinous channel, and that can clear it up. But once there's the blood stasis, you have to do something locally. And trigger points often are this kind of blood stasis. And physiologically, they are. There's actually a restriction of blood flow in the area because of the tightening of the muscle. If all of your treatments that you normally have available to you are just distal treatments, just channel treatments, and you're not, you don't have some way of addressing really tight local osher points directly, which mean most acupuncturists do. So I don't, I can't imagine that really be a problem for most people. But there are going to be times when the distal treatments, or if you're doing like the balance method, which I love, um, the Richard Tan stuff or the Master Dong points, some type of distal or, or far away treatment uh, it can be really, really helpful. But there are times when you still have to go in locally with trigger points and and disrupt the feedback loop that's keeping the trigger point active. Bust it up. Yep. Finish up with this here. We were, we were talking about somebody with, with hand pain. Maybe you trace it back to the shoulder. What do you do to resolve it? I mean, I heard you say you could needle it, you can gua sha it, you can moxa it. Fill us in a little bit on this. Okay, so I can actually use a really interesting case that I had a number of years ago that can be a little bit more of a complicated one, uh, but it kind of shows the range of things that you can do. So I had a patient come into my clinic probably about six or seven years ago who had really bad shoulder pain and arm pain following a very bad motorcycle accident. He was thrown from his bike and his scapula was shattered into about seven pieces. So he had reconstructive surgery. His scapula had all these bolts in it and all this hardware that he'd had in there for a long time. There's probably still hardware in there actually when he came to see me. And that had been maybe a couple of years before I saw him. The problem was really a traumatic injury to the shoulder itself I wasn't worried as much, you know, to begin with that, you know, is this like some guy who sits at a computer all day and he's got problems in his shoulder from poor posture or whatever. So I start palpating and sure enough, he's got incredibly active trigger points all over his, the infraspinatus, supraspinatus, the teres minor, uh, teres major, the rhomboids, the levator scapula, the trapezius, the middle and lower and upper trapezius, all the muscles in that area. And so I did, okay, I thought to myself, this is great because I have a definite local problem where I can really focus on clearing up the local tissue first and not worry too much about the complexities of all the other compensations that have happened until we start making at least a little bit of headway with the local blood stasis problem. So I started with doing some manual trigger point releases. So I'd find really tender spots in the muscles around small intestine 11, small intestine 12, 13, all the outer UB points around the rhomboids and the, the uh, middle and lower trapezius. And I would find these points and I would do a lot of manual therapy on them. And I would do Twena. And it would either not help or actually make things worse. And so then I thought, well, let me just, oh, let me needle them. Uh, maybe the manual therapy is a little bit too intense because the manual therapy is, you know, treating trigger points. You're actually pressing into the point enough to really cause a fair amount of discomfort. And you hold it until the discomfort goes down. Um, it can take 30 seconds to like a minute and a half in most cases. And for sensitive patients, they can be sore afterwards for a day or so. So I thought, well, let me just do some needling. So I did some needling and not very aggressive needling, like the way that you do the quote unquote dry needling, where you're repeatedly lifting and thrusting the needle, but just finding the tender spots, putting a needle in the tender spot, and just letting it rest. And I would do that and Again, that would either not help or make it worse following the treatment. And I did a bunch of other things where I finally realized what was going to, what the most helpful thing for him was to actually do rice grain moxa, 
on the trigger points that I found as if I was needling them. So I would do maybe five cones of rice grain moxa on the trigger points. And that was what kind of turned the corner and all of a sudden started recovering and all of his pain went away. Um, he started getting much better range of motion in the shoulder. But for him, it was still important to actually treat the, the osher points and the trigger points in the area that were causing the pain in the front of the shoulder and he was having pain down the arm. But it was the specifics of the technique that I was using that were really making the biggest difference. The needling was too much for him. The manual technique was too much. But the, the heat from the moxa and the, the blood moving quality of, of the moxa were really what was necessary. Two basic misconceptions stand in the way of people feeling comfortable using Chinese herbal medicine, even as they are feeling more positive about acupuncture. They are concerned about safety as herbal medicine is an unregulated industry and feel herbs are not effective to treat most conditions. Blue Poppy is committed to meeting all FDA safety regulations. All of their herbal products contain minimal or no filler to maximize potency and efficiency. Their granules are carefully manufactured in GMP certified facilities and every batch is tested multiple times for pesticides, heavy metals, and microbial content at the manufacturer and by SGS Laboratory, a Swiss certification and inspection company. For over 20 years, Blue Poppy has made quality and safety manufacturing standards their biggest priority, resulting in exceptionally effective herbal formulas. Their years of experience provide you with the best possible herbs so your patients have the best possible outcomes. With free shipping and free dropship service on orders over $50, Blue Poppy should be your favorite place to shop for herbs. Use the code CHI2024 to receive 10% off Blue Poppy products on your next order. He was actually more deficient an excess there. I mean, when I hear using pressure, you're going to go in there with your fingers, you're going to break it up, didn't help or made it worse, needling, you know, again, too much, but a little bit of rice grain moxa. I mean, I'm, I'm thinking to myself, guy's got this injury from motorcycle accident, he's all bound up, you know, I'm thinking, God, you got to get in there with blasting caps, but it was actually the opposite, wasn't it? Uh, yeah. And so you can look at that a few different ways. In one sense, you can look at the moxa as a more kind of a warming, tonifying treatment. But I was really doing rice grain moxa and trying to be, trying to use it the way I would use needles. And the thing with uh, really chronic injuries like that is that what ends up happening, especially if treatments just don't work the way that you expect them to, um, or maybe they get better briefly, but it keeps coming back, is there's usually an element of deep-rooted cold stasis that is causing this continued contraction. And so part of me was using the moxa to help try to get heat kind of deep into the area because, you know, that rice grain has this very penetrating heat. So it was an excess condition after all. It, it was definitely, it was local excess, but then, you know, you get into that, that thing that we have to get into as, as acupuncturists where you have to figure out what, what layer is excess, what layer is deficient, and you can have multiple layers of excess and deficiency um, and with chronic pain like this, you know, there's that the phrase from the Neijing, if there's no free flow, then that's what pain is. If there's pain, then there's a lack of free flow. And so at some level with pain in TCM, we're always looking at stagnation. But with the interesting thing with looking at trigger points and muscles is we kind of have to do the same thing, that there are types of pain coming from muscles that are coming from the muscles not functioning well. They're, they're weak, they're hypo, they, they lack tone. And you can have people who are kind of hypermobile and very loosey-goosey, but still have muscle pain. And you can have people who are really tight and have excess tension in the muscles and excess trigger points. And they can also have muscle pain. And the treatment for those two different types of people can be very different even though both of the treatments might involve releasing trigger points, because if in the case of someone who is who has low tone and is hypermobile, they're going to have trigger points in muscles that especially tend to stabilize joints because the muscles are having to work extra hard just to keep joints stable. I've had a lot of patients like this. Well, you probably see people like with Ehlers-Daniels syndrome who have that kind of thing, right? You know, they're they're like totally loosey goosey, 
And then they've got these trigger points because their their muscles are trying to make up for uh, what their tendons won't do. Right. And so the important thing in cases like that is figuring out, okay, how much of the treatment do I want to do as a kind of a dispersing treatment trying to get the trigger point to relax? Or do I want to just do things to focus on strengthening the deficiencies because the trigger points in the muscles may be the one thing that's kind of keeping the joint stable? That's the, the really interesting thing about working with muscles and trigger points to me. Well, it's the interesting thing about doing Chinese medicine that we have this particular perspective. You can have things interwoven as deficiency and excess, and we have to be clear about what is where if we want to get somewhere with it. Now, I want to take just a little sidetrack here because I know that you've done some study with, for lack of a better word, dry needling or the intramuscular therapy. Do these folks talk about deficiency and excess the way that we do? And if not, how do they make sense of these kind of complex situations? They talk about it in the broader context of orthopedic assessment. I just took a class about a month ago. It wasn't a trigger point class, but it was a class full of about 80 physical therapists. It was a particular way of, of assessing and diagnosing movement and structural disorders in the body. So it's kind of a screening method for uh, you look at some, how someone moves, a few basic movements, you have them touch their toes, you have them kind of rotate left and right, they move their head. And then if they have particular problems with a certain gross motor movement, you kind of break it down and figure out, okay, is the if they can't reach down and touch their toes in a way that's healthy, is it coming from tightness in the hip? Is it coming from uh, hamstring tightness? Is it coming from a lack of motor control of their core? Is it a lack of motor control of the hip flexors? that they like kind of don't know how to fold at the hip? Do they have stiffness in the upper back or stiffness in the lower back that's not allowing their spine to bend normally? And all of those types of diagnosis come down to figuring out how much of their problem is coming from what we would call excess, like stiffness and a movement dysfunction that's coming from a tightness, and how much of it is coming from what we would call a deficiency, which in their world is a stability or a motor control issue. It's like their body doesn't know how to function normally. Teasing out what part of the problem is uh, mobility dysfunction with stiffness and how much of it is a stability dysfunction of weakness. And interestingly, in their world also, they find that it's most important to treat the, the stiffness and the mobility dysfunction first. So if someone has weakness in an area like they have weakness in the rotator cuff muscle. The infraspinatus is weak. They have trigger points in the infraspinatus. If they have stiffness in the thoracic spine, so the rib cage and the thoracic spine are really stiff and doesn't move very well, you actually have to treat that before you treat the weakness further out in the limb because the stiffness, the excess in this case, is going to create the deficiency further out. So that's not dealing with trigger points per se, but that is in the general wheelhouse of of certain types of orthopedic medicine, like in, especially in physical therapy. But in terms of the trigger point classes that I've done with them, it's not as obvious. There's not as much of a distinction between that. There's just the trigger point. The muscle is either has a trigger point or not. The subtlety from their perspective comes from looking at all the various factors that can be contributing to it. Because some of them, if it's like overuse of the muscle itself, we would consider that more kind of an excess. There's tightness in the muscle because they're overusing it and it tightens up in response. But then from the Western medicine point of view, trigger points can also occur from psychological and emotional stress. They can occur from bacterial and viral infections. They can occur from metabolic disorders, from like you know, diabetes or hypoglycemia, from lupus, all of those things can also contribute to the formation of trigger points in muscles. And so in those cases, you have to address those underlying factors, right? sleep disturbance, for instance. So those are cases where you wouldn't necessarily go in from the Western point of view and just needle the trigger points because they're going to keep coming back and forming because you have this other engine that's driving them that may have nothing to do with the actual excess in the muscle itself. So in that sense, I, I wouldn't call it excess and deficiency the way but that they, But they have it. some ways of getting a bigger sense of, of like the texture of the problem, how the thing hangs together. 
and actually, if you read Travell, the books that she wrote, and even if you just look up some of the the quotes um, from her, uh, she was really pushing very hard back in the in the sixties and the seventies, even to really look at the entire person because looking at trigger points. So Travell was a cardiologist. She went to medical school in the twenties at like Columbia University, I think. One of the, I mean, very rare for a woman to graduate from medical school in like 1927 or whenever it was that she graduated. Um, but she very quickly in the 30s became interested in muscle pain and muscle dysfunction in the process of looking at some of the studies from the, like the 1930s by Kelgren about uh, like muscle referral patterns and muscle pain. She started getting interested in muscle dysfunction and started really also looking at all the various factors involved in producing muscle dysfunction. And she really was stressing a lot through the, through the, I'm assuming through the 50s, but at least in the 60s and 70s, how you have to look at the entire person and not just focus on the dysfunctional muscle. And a lot of her, the things that she would say back then sound like they're right out of the traditional Chinese medicine text, that it's, you have to look at their emotional health. You have to look at how their, how their bodies fit into their environment. Like if someone has short upper arms, like their humerus is a little bit shorter than average. Like if their elbow doesn't quite reach down to their iliac crest, when they're sitting in a chair that has armrests, if their arms are too short, they're going to constantly be having to kind of lean forward to rest their elbows on the armrest instead of being able to stay more upright. And that's going to develop trigger points in like the suboccipital muscles and the trapezius and have this head forward posture. But it's not just from the problem in the muscles. It's from the, the way that the person fits into their environment. There is that idea in the Western approach to trigger point therapy that is looking at the whole person and not just focusing on the problem in the muscle. But I think that usually gets probably lost in the discussion because with when you start talking about trigger points, everybody focuses on the local muscular problem itself. And it can become, you I mean even, you know, as a as an acupuncturist, I know acupuncturists, myself included, who go through a period of time where once you learn about trigger points, it's such a compelling and powerful clinical tool that you just get really hyper-focused on that. And it takes a few years until you start being able to expand your perception and your awareness and start looking at all the other factors involved and not just be obsessed with the results you're getting from like, you know, needling tight muscles. Well, and, and of course, we love it when we get good results and we want to keep doing more of that because it helps people and we like to see them helped and you know and then we feel good and we like that i'm struck here listening to this bit of history i didn't realize that janet travell graduated in the 20s holy smokes she must have been an amazing character to first of all get into medical school and get through it back in that time but but to hear how she put this stuff together you know, through her own observation, through her own work, put together something that, like you said, this sounds like something right out of Chinese medicine. How does a person fit into their environment? If I just took one thing away from our discussion today, how does this person fit into their environment? If I just took that away today and started really looking at that with my patients, holy smokes, I, I bet I'm going to notice all kinds of things that I was blind to before. Well, Travell was really fascinating because, you know, she ended up becoming the personal physician of uh, John F. Kennedy, and she was appointed the White House physician. Really? Uh, first, yeah, the first woman to ever be in that position. So she was like the imperial doctor. She was. And, you know, Kennedy was not a healthy man. I forgot the name of the condition that he had that he was diagnosed with as a young boy, but he had all sorts of problems. Then he had a series of physical injuries. He had a series of like four back surgeries, starting from like a football injury when he was in college. And then he was in, uh, in World War II, he was in one of the U-boats that got ran by a Japanese ship. There's the movie about it, really famous World War II movie that was the story of Kennedy. Anyway, so his, his U-boat got rammed and most of the Actually, crew died. Actually, it was a PT boat. Oh yeah, PT boat, sorry, yeah, it was a PT boat. PT-109. <laughs> Right, I think that so. was about Kennedy, right? <laughs> yeah. And so he had this; he'd had a back injury before and a couple of surgeries, and then his PT boat gets hit, and he actually saves one of his crew members by keeping them from drowning and like swimming for five hours 
and that completely screws up his back. And he has a series of other surgeries later on to correct problems from the first surgeries and infections. Travell was treating him with a number of different things, but she was also treating trigger points and muscles. And it was actually a letter from uh, Robert Kennedy to Travell that you can find online that the text of which basically says, I think he's the letter is to someone else. It's not to Travell, it's to Johnson or someone. And he says that, you know, President Kennedy is doing well under the care of Travell. If it wasn't for her and for her work, he would probably not be president of the United States right now. So she was a really pivotal figure. And then the, one of the theories about why trigger point theory really didn't catch on until really recently, it was kind of overlooked for decades, was because when Kennedy was shot, she didn't stay on very long after that as a White House physician. Whereas if she had, and if Kennedy had not been assassinated, a lot of her ideas about the importance of looking at muscles probably would have spread through the medical community much more and be given a lot more importance. Uh, but there's a whole a very interesting series of reasons why trigger point theory, even though it's a Western medicine idea, is really, really overlooked and why we as acupuncturists in some ways are in a really good position to be able to address this in a way that a lot of Western people in the Western medicine field of pain management aren't. So I want to come back to this thing about language because there's there's a lot of, you know, I mean, there's conflict, right, between acupuncturists and PTs. And, you know, we've got our ways of thinking about it. We kind of bristle that that they're using a more scientific language to describe something as well. It occurs to me that our patients, actually, they don't care about whatever languaging anybody's using. But here's what they do care about. They care that they understand what's going on for them. And they care that their doctor gets them, so to speak. And I'm all about thinking with our Chinese medicine mind. But it seems that if we go always speaking our Chinese medicine mind, it doesn't help people to understand how we might be able to help them. And I, it seems to me that the, the folks that are doing the dry needling and these other therapies for that matter, they're doing a great job of using Western language, Western thought that, you know, that overlay that, you know, that we all have that we grew up with and speaking it in a very holistic, connected way. Yeah. And to take it back to something we were just talking about a couple of minutes ago, you can look at not only how well is the patient fitting into their environment, but how well is the practitioner fitting into their environment? Right. Right. Yes, exactly. So as a practitioner, if you're speaking in a language that's alienating your patients or, or almost as bad but not in the same way, that is misleading your patients and getting them excited but for the wrong reasons, like just because they love esoteric terminology, then that can really have a detrimental long-term effect on even I think you as a practitioner because you know having a, a really clear type of communication between you and your patients and your patients having an underlying fundamental sense that, like you said, you know, you get them. That's just invaluable. Even when you have patients who you think you're not going to be able to help because you have an idea of something that's wrong with them and it's outside of your area of expertise, I can't tell you how many people I've had who've called me up and talked about, they wanted to come in and have an appointment with me and just talking to them over the phone, I can tell that I'm not the person they need to see and that I, I'll refer them out, either tell them to, you know, you need to go see a, a good physical therapist or you need to see another acupuncturist. I've got colleagues who are good herbalists who are really going to be much better at treating what you have going on than, you know, the type of herbalism they do is much more geared on what you have going on than the herbs that I use or the way that I look at herbs. And people are so appreciative of being talked to clearly and having things explained to them in a way they can understand. And that really is one of the reasons when I teach at school that I really focus on a lot of the Western stuff and the trigger point stuff is because it gives the students vocabulary that they can use with patients that will just really have the, really help the patients to feel confidence in the student as a practitioner because they're using words that make sense to the patient and that really reflect in a lot of ways 
the subjective experience of the patient. Because all of our patients who are coming in, they grew up in this culture. And so most of the patients are thinking in terms of their muscles and their tendons and their ligaments and, and their um, nerves and all that. And their nerves, exactly. And they've been probably been given three or four different diagnoses for their problem. And so being able to navigate the various diagnoses that the patient has and explain to them why you think this one might be right or this one might be wrong or not wrong, but why you think there were these other things that we can look at that haven't been addressed by the doctor that you saw or the chiropractor or the, the PT who like weren't looking at trigger points for whatever reason. Yeah, patients really usually express this, this really profound sense of relief and gratitude that someone's finally getting to the, to the problem. And then once you actually start palpating and you palpate the trigger point and you recreate their pain, I mean, it's over and over again. And the, I try to make sure that the students have this, this experience as well. The patient says, you're the first person that's actually gotten to where I feel the problem is. You know, and that comes from understanding how to get into like some of the deep hidden fibers of certain muscles or understanding if someone has pain in the front of the shoulder, the problem could be coming from the back of the shoulder. And like patient, that's really, to me, that's the usher point where the patient goes, not just like, ow, that hurts, but that's the, that's the focus of my problem, right? Ooh, I love that definition. I had not thought of an usher point as this is where the problem is. I've, I've always thought of it as, oh yeah, it's tight, it's tender. But that, that gives a whole different perspective on what an usher point actually is. Or at least what it could be. You know, it's, it's hard to say like what was going on in the minds of the people originally who said it. But like for me, that's the significance of it is that when you find the right spot that especially when it recreates their pain far away in their body, like you press on small intestine 11 and their, their wrist lights up. Um, and they go, ah, that's the spot. It's like they literally say that, right? Ah, that's it. They literally say that. And I think that's really cross-cultural. And that's a really satisfying way of practicing. It's, well, for the patient, it's really enlightening because they finally have that feeling after having been through several different diagnoses and a bunch of different doctors and pain specialists and maybe orthopedic surgeons and manual therapists and massage therapists. And you're the first person who's looked at that particular thing and they go, okay, finally someone gets it. You bothered to put your hands on and you used your hands in a way that led you to where, to where the issue was. Exactly. Yeah, great. Well, Dr. Lena, it's always a pleasure. It is always a pleasure for me too, Michael. This is really so much fun. If you have any uh, resources that you'd like to share with the listeners, just send that stuff to me and y'all know I'll put it on the show notes page for you. Just pop on over to Geological and it'll be waiting for you. Cool. I will do that. All right, man. I'll see you. All right. See you later. Thanks as always for listening. If you liked this conversation, if you learned something new or found a moment of inspired insight, share the episode with your friends. If you want to support Geological, there's just one way to do that. It's by going to the website and becoming a member or leaving a one-time contribution today. Well, folks, that's it for today. Join us again next Tuesday for another conversation that connects up the voices of our community. Mm -hmm.